Before we start the show, I want to thank the thousands of you, the thousands who have read This Book Will Make You Dangerous. Many of you have told me that the book's unique way of exploring fear, confidence, and purpose has had a lasting impact, that it's much easier for you to get clarity and direction about what really matters and what you want to do in this lifetime. It's also amazing to hear that quite a few of you have read it multiple times and even bought copies for friends, so thank you again. Just in case you weren't aware, I created a free companion video course for the book. And in these videos, I walk you through the big takeaways and practices from each chapter. And I even cover some extra stuff that's not included in the book. Information on how to access the course is in newer versions of the book. And if you own an older version of the book and you don't know how to access the course, just hit me up via the contact form at triplinear.com and we'll get you all set up. And one last thing, if you're one of the thousands who have already read the book, please consider leaving an honest review on Amazon so that others can decide if it's right for them. Again, thank you so much for reading. This book will make you dangerous. And now let's start the show. You are listening to the new man beyond the macho jerk and the new age wimp. Your host is men's coach, Trip Lanier. Do normal families really exist? Do you ever wish your sibling or mother or father or kid would change? And what can you do if your family is a difficult family? Eric Maisel is here to talk about why families are so challenging and what you can do so that you don't give up your power. Welcome to The New Man. Today, we're talking with Eric Maisel. He's the author of Overcoming Your Difficult Family, Eight Skills for Thriving in Any Family Situation. He's also written a ton of other books on creativity, life purpose, writing, you name it. And you can learn more about him by visiting ericmaisel.com. I read Fearless Creating years ago when I was struggling to find my mojo, and I loved it. So, Eric, thanks so much for talking today. You're very welcome. Boy, that book, uh, let's see, that'd be about uh, about 1994, I do believe. I don't know if I read it. it. It was, I don't think I read it then. I think I read it was probably around 2006 or 2007. I probably read it, but uh, yeah, you've, I mean, you're, you've got an impressive list of creations. Do you ever stop? Do you ever take a break? Are you always, how many books are you working on at a time? Uh, I usually only work at, on one at a time because, you know, our brain likes to organize itself around one thing. But I try to do about two books a year. Uh, it's not a, a hard and fast goal. But, uh, you know, our meaning needs don't end when a book ends. So I'm always looking for the next thing to do. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Well, well today we're talking about family. Uh, I know many guys who are out there on this path of personal growth. They're expanding who they are in the world, their profession and their intimate relationships. And they're wanting to build a strong community of like-minded folks. And then the holidays come around, and they seem to lose their power when they get around their mother or their father or their siblings. There's something about this family dynamic that's kryptonite for them. And, and there's a cost to this dynamic. Deep down, they do love and appreciate their family, but hanging out with them is just really challenging. So they feel torn. They feel guilty for not wanting to be closer to them. So I'm hoping today that um, we can help the guy that's listening feel a little more expansive or strong and confident when it comes to dealing with this family. Uh, so this new book, Overcoming Your Difficult Family, Eight Skills for Thriving in Any Family Situation, 
What had you write this book? A couple of different reasons. Um, the main one is I'm in the movement, which has a couple of different names, critical psychology, critical psychiatry, anti-psychiatry. It's a movement that doesn't believe in the current paradigm of diagnosing and treating mental disorders. We don't actually believe that things called mental disorders exist. The underlying things exist like suffering, despair, anxiety, but the labels that get attached to them aren't very valuable and aren't very legitimate. Hmm. And so because millions and millions and millions and millions of people, including millions of kids, believe that they have some individual disorder, clinical depression, generalized anxiety disorder, ADHD, whatever, we've completely lost the idea of context and circumstances mattering. We've completely lost the idea that maybe a, a child who's exhibiting some symptoms of some sort may be exhibiting them because their parents are screaming at the dinner table every day. We've lost that. The average time a psychiatrist spends with a new patient nowadays is 15 minutes. Oh. There can't be any exploration going on. There can't be anything going on there with regard to looking at your family life. It has to be just a kind of checklist interaction. That's all that can be going on there. So they kind of look at the surface level without really understanding, you know, the con when you say context, that, that, that what's, what's the world that this person's living in that would help, that would produce this behavior? Is that what you're saying? Exactly. It's like if, if you came in and and your, your hands were rough and you showed that to a doctor and the doctor would nod and say you have rough handitis. <laughs> that, that, there's nothing going on there except a, a observable, simple, superficial symptom getting called by the name of that symptom. Mm. The, the transaction that goes on nowadays is I come in and I say I'm depressed and you say, yes, you're depressed and you start writing a prescription. Mm. Nothing has gone on there. Nothing, nothing to get to the root of it, nothing to have a better understanding and say this is the, this is the product of a way that you're living or the, or the environment you're living in. Exactly. And it, it should strike people as odd that there, that there can possibly be a pill to help with you hating your job or you hating your relationship or you have, having Thanksgiving coming up, as you mentioned. There, can't, there shouldn't be a pill for that. Somebody should be looking at what's actually going on there. Okay. Well, let's get specific. What kind of difficulties are we talking about? I want the guy that's listening to say, oh, well, he's talking about me or no, that's not it. So when you, what, what do you see that, that's most common when folks come to you and they're talking about the, the challenges that they're dealing with? There are lots of basic difficulties. Um, one is that every, to my mind, every family has a certain kind of flavor and therefore, you're, you're, you're growing up with that kind of background coloration. So maybe you're growing up in a family that's sadder than average or actually loveless, where people claim to be loving each other, but there isn't much love in evidence. Or maybe it's a warring family. Lots of blended families have these divisions and cliques and what have you. Maybe it's a bullying family where one parent or one family member or very often a sibling is bullying other family members. Let me just say parenthetically, I've learned in doing maybe 20 or 30 interviews for this book, how often the hosts want to talk about difficult sibling dynamics. So I think that's an interesting underexplored area in the universe, how many siblings are at odds with each other and how many ruptures go on among siblings. But to ret return to the main point, there are demanding 
and critical families. There are families with an addicted member where everybody's keeping the, the secret that dad or mom is, a, is an alcoholic. Mm. There are lots of rule-bound families. I think if you think of like an orthodox religious family and all of the rules are there, and that's going to that's going to feel intrusive to some family members. That's going to feel odd to some family members, all of these rules. And then I work with creative performing artists. Have I've been doing that for 30 years. And in their lives, there are often lots of dramatic and chaotic families, lots of dramas going on. As you know, in creative families, often one or both members are unemployed at any given moment. Lots of job changes, lots of geographical changes, lots of things going on that cause stress. And then I think this is a new kind of family in the world. Maybe it's always been here, but I think with all of the gadgets around now, there are acquisitive and materialistic families, families that orient themselves around the latest phone and the latest device and the latest this and the latest that. And if you're not buying into that, that kind of family is going to seem very strange to you and very off-putting. And then I think there are whole families that are essentially defeated, where every adult family member had a dream at some point of one sort or another. Could have been, you know, writing that novel dream or whatever the dream was, but every single family member never had that dream realized. And now they're all doing things they really wish they weren't doing. So the flavor of that family would be lots of frustration and lots of defeat. And kids growing up in that family generally feel that they have no chance. They, they don't exactly know why they don't have a chance, but that's the message they've been getting from parents all along is none of us, real, nobody in life, we especially don't have a chance. So those are some of the situations that folks grow up in and are still uh, dealing with. That's just a little little checklist or headline of some of the things going on. Okay. And I, you know, I can imagine there's this, I, growing up, there's this thing like, well, my family's the only one that's going, that has these kind of problems. Everybody else's family is putting on their best face and they got it all together. Um, everyone else has this more happy or healthy or normal, quote, normal household. Um, and this keeps us from talking about it. It keeps us from from dealing with it, um, other than maybe bitching or complaining to a close friend. Is there really a, a quote normal family? Is that does that ever exist? It would be a very small percentage of all families. If you just think about sort of raw statistics, if fifty percent of all marriages end in divorce, if seventy five percent of all second marriages and third marriages end in divorce. And if lots of other marriages ought to end in divorce, the ones where folks are staying together for whatever reasons, for the sake of the children or for financial reasons, if you tally that all up, you're looking at maybe 70 or 80 percent of all dyadic couples out there who aren't really liking each other and who are on the verge of separating. Wow. And that's just one dynamic. So I think if you add up all the kinds of dynamics, including everybody in a family having an agenda. Every single human being has an agenda. We all, we all have our selfish genes. That's just who we are. That's not, a, that's not an indictment of any given individual, maybe an indictment of the species, but not of any given individual. So we all have our agendas. We all hold our resentments. We all are disappointed in the way other people in our family are treating us. We all are like that. So I, I would imagine, if I had to guess, I would imagine that hardly one or two percent of all families out there are anything like happy families. Got it. And, I, and the, the thing that I'm getting is that we grow up in this family. We grow up, it's like an aquarium, right? We grow up in this water. We have no idea 
that we're in this water. It's, it's something that we can't see because it's, we've been in it for our entire lives. Um, and then we go into adulthood and we're, we've been, we've taken on this programming and it's hard for us to see. It's hard for us to get that we might be moving through the world in a defeated way or in a materialistic way or whatever. Like you went through that list. There's all these different ways. I might be scarcity. There might be, might be scarcity about resources, money, time, whatever. Um, and then, and then we, ultimately we create another family and we pass on those traits. Is that, is that, I, I just want to, are people really aware of the kind of the water they're swimming in and that, and the fact that they are complicit in, 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 uh, moving it forward? They're not aware. And there's another, um, big point to make. Let me just add it on here. The thing you said of passing along has to do with the way your family was and all of that. But there's another piece to the puzzle, and that's what I call original personality. I mean, I have a little model of personality. The personality is made up of three parts, original personality. That is, those endowments we come into the world with already. And if anybody's had puppies or kittens or, or kids, you know that every creature comes into the world already itself. None of that is taken into account by psychology or psychotherapy or psychiatry. None of that. Mm-hmm. No, there's no idea that you may have already been born a little sadder than the next person or a little more anxious than the next person. These things then ought not to be called mental disorders, that you're a little sadder than the next person or a little more anxious. They are real challenges, but they're not mental disorders. They're part of your original endowment. Then the second part of personality I called formed personality. That's the thing you were talking about, sort of the way we accrete over time, the way we become ourselves And then the third part, and really the most important part for someone right now, is what I call available personality. That is our remaining freedom to be or become the person we really want to be. So unless you take these three parts into account, namely that we come into the world already somebody, then life and especially our family start to mold us in a certain way, but that we still have some available personality left so that we can become the person we want to be. Unless you take those three into account, I don't think that you're holding a robust enough picture of human beings. Hmm. That that's astonishing. You know, I, I always I like that original personality. I always thought that was kind of your essence, right? You see a child laying there, and they don't they don't have any verbal abilities, but you can just you just get them. There's a, there's the there's an essence about who that person is, even at a very young age. And then we're formed by our environment. We're formed. We're influenced by the people around us. And then I like that. There's still some left over where I can say, hey, you know what? I'm I'm going to not I'm going to break out of this form. Is that what it is? Like that available personality is is what allows me to say, hey, I, I can have some choice around the stuff that I've been programmed to think and say and do my entire life. Is that what it is? Exactly. And I I kind of think of available personality almost like an amount that changes depending on circumstances. For instance, if you're currently an addict and you're running around town all day looking for a fix, you don't have a lot of available personality available. But if one day your your car hits a tree and you hit bottom and you enter into recovery, that very next day, you have more of your personality available to you. You haven't gone from 1% to 83%, but you have more of your personality available to you to work your recovery program and so on. So I think in my language, it's possible to upgrade our personality by kind of reclaiming some of that form personality 
and turning it into newly available personality. We've got to pull ourselves out of a victim mindset, which is, well, this is just the way things are, and I'm powerless to do anything about it, to say, okay, this is the way things are. Now, what can I do about it? Given, given the resources and the time and energy and the choices that I have in front of me, what can I do about it? That's where we step into that more of a creator mindset and say, all right, this is up to me. How, how do I want to go about doing X, Y, Z today? Yeah, and people hate to work. That's one of, the, one of the problems with our species is that people don't really want to do the work they need to do in order to make themselves proud and in order to actually be the person they want to be. So that's just one of our tragedies as a species that folks don't really want to do that. But as counterpoint to that, millions, millions of people do enter into recovery all the time. So there's that sense in which folks are, are willing to look in the mirror deal with their denial, deal, deal with their defensive structure, and gain more personal awareness and actually make the changes they need to make. In the book, I have lots of tactics, and I, I, do th- I don't scorn tactics. I think folks can try small things that actually make a big difference, but they still have to try them. Got it. Let's come back because you said we don't want to do the work, so that means that it's up to somebody else to, to change, right? So... I'm only going to be happy when my partner changes or my sibling changes or my mother changes or my father changes. That's, that's in my mind. I can get stuck in this place. Like That's what needs to happen so that I feel relief, so that I feel peace, so that I feel loved and accepted. Um, but what if these people never change who they are? Does that mean I got to you know, cut bait and get the hell out of here? Or what, what, what do we do? If, if, if the listener is stuck in this place, like, how do I change my family? What? <laughs> What do we say to him? You can't change your family, but you can exert some influence. The first step would be to upgrade your own personality. That would be the first step. What does that to, mean? To become more of the person, to, to acquire the strengths I mentioned in the book, to actually know how to manifest your strength and your smarts and your clarity and your courage in your relationships and in your life. There are lots of things to try that amount to you being, let's say, your best version of yourself. But let's say you don't quite manage to do that, or let's say you do manage to do that. You still can't control other people, but you can be influential. You can do things differently. For example, if you need to have a conversation with somebody, some family member, an important conversation, rather than trying to have it as both of you are pushing each other around the kitchen table over breakfast, Go kind of ceremonially set up a date, go have dinner, go walk by the lake, have the conversation in a different place in a different way. Something like that, something as simple as having the conversation in a different place can make a difference because I think both people understand that there's something important and special when you go someplace new or different for that kind of conversation. So that's a kind of thing where you can attempt to um, exert some influence or make some changes. Another simple one, simple to say, not necessarily simple to do, but simple to say, is to speak more clearly. I have clients try to speak in sentences of seven words or fewer with a real period at the end of a sentence. Because most people go on and on and on. They put in commas. They half apologize. They kind of take the sting out of the thing they're trying to say so as to not be too abrasive, etc., so it takes a lot of courage to speak in short sentences. And here's, here's what a short sentence sounds like. Mm-hmm. That's not okay, period. 
very few people in family situations and dyadic situations with their kids, with their siblings, with their parents ever say, that's not okay. With a real period there. Mm -hmm. We say things in much more confused, complicated, and not so useful ways. So to repeat, we can't control other people, but it would be influential to begin speaking in sentences like that. It's setting a boundary. And I can imagine if I grew up in this environment where, you know, whether it was a sibling or a parent that was, had authority over me, that it would seem, even if I'm in my 30s, 40s, 50s, it might still seem really weird to set a boundary. Like, I can go set a boundary with somebody on the street, but I, doing it in, this, in, in my family uh, of origin is, is not okay. So when is it time? If that, if that person is just like, I can't do it, or he's having a hard time with that, when, when, how can we help him see that, no, this is when you set a boundary. It's not okay anymore. Well, one way, this is both an anxiety management technique, but also a way to accomplish the thing you just said, and that's to rehearse the interaction in your mind, visualize the interaction. I have uh, clients rehearse interactions all the time, and they do an amazingly good job of being able to play both roles because they they know what the other person is going to say. They know what their husband or their father or their son is going to say. So they can say what they want to say. They can, they can say what their son's going to say, etc. They can go back and forth in this conversation, and they can say, oops, okay, I see if I say it that way, then my son's going to have a fit and leave the room, and that's not going to work perfectly. So maybe I can massage the way I say that. So by having this careful rehearsal process, you can do a good job of preparing yourself to have the actual conversation. To repeat, most people don't want to do the work of rehearsing like that. But if you're willing to do that kind of rehearsing, you can get yourself much better prepared to have the conversations you need to have. It also means that we've got to be willing to really claim what it is that we're wanting in in that interaction instead of most, what most of us are doing is like, how do I get through this interaction without there being a conflict? And we just keep kicking the can down the road. It's just like, I just, I just don't want this to be difficult. I just want things to stay smooth and like whatever. Um, but it seems to be a choice. There's like, no, it, I need to set this boundary. I need to let this person know that whatever's happening is not okay. Or I have a request or whatever. So I want to help that listener just really take a seat there instead of waiting for it to be perfect and it to be safe and all that you get all the green lights before you do this, just say, I'm going to do this no matter what. How do, you, how do you go about advising that? Again, I think it's just, A, it's practice, but then B, it's one of the strengths that I spend a lot of time in the book on is the strength of clarity. That's exactly what you're saying, being clear on what you want. And often we don't want just one thing. So let's say we, we both want to express that we still love our son, but that his drinking is not okay to us. Well, that means we want to get both of those messages out to our son at the same time so he gets both the loving part but also the not okay part. Hmm. And that can sound exactly the way I just said it. John, I love you tremendously and your drinking is not okay. So my manifestation of love is that you and I are going to an AA meeting. How does that sound? And he's going to you know, rebel and what have you and what have you and say no and my drinking isn't a problem and blah, 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 blah. But the second time you say that, he may hear you a little better. And the third time you say that, he may say, okay, okay, let's go. Mm. I like that you, that you stay with it 
instead of like, well, I tried, I threw, you know, and there's like this give up. I, I, I went into the, to the belly of the beast and I got my ass kicked. I got a no. So that was it. No, you're saying keep going. Keep taking a stand for what you want. Keep coming back even if you got a no. Yeah, especially with kids. I think we don't want to give up on our kids. It's, it, they can be very difficult and they can make us want to give up on them. Um, that's why one of the one of the skills in the book that I spend a lot of time on is, is the skill of resilience because we have to keep doing these things over and over again. With a coworker, well, maybe we can avoid the coworker or leave the job or what have you. We don't have to be so resilient there. But with family members, actually, especially with siblings, because siblings are sort of born at the same time we are, and they, they live their whole lives sort of congruent with our lives, we're going to have to be, if, if those interactions are difficult, we're going to have to be really resilient there because we're going to be dealing with those siblings our whole life long. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the things we must get better at is not giving up on people un- unless they are unsafe to us. And that's a, you know, that's a different kind of situation. And that's primary. If some family member is um, harming us, that's not okay. And we have to, and there, there the headline would be safety first. Okay. Uh, well, let's imagine that the guy listening, there's been a lot of stuff that we've talked about here today. So I just want to help him come back to, to step number one. He's, he's facing a, a situation, whether it's with a parent, a sibling, or even his own child. What's just the very first thing that, that he can do so he feels more confident and, and ready to engage? First thing is to get quiet. We have a hard time tolerating difficult thoughts. And I have an exercise either in this book or some other book of just trying to tolerate a difficult thought for 10 seconds. It's amazingly difficult. If the thought is ultimately my son's really out of control or I need to leave my wife, or those are very hard thoughts to tolerate. So the way you frame the question, what's the first thing? The first thing is to get quiet and even tolerate the thought you're thinking. Instead of push it away, instead of act like it's not there, just actually be with it. That's right. And that's very hard. That, that's why I'm sort of patiently saying this point, because I don't want to rush past it. It's very hard to get through our... We, we have defenses with 20 different kinds of names, rationalization, intellectualization, la la la. There are lots of ways that we deny what's going on or minimize what's going on. So the first step is to not deny what's going on and to not minimize what's going on and to accept that something really is going on. We may be with somebody who's been, who's always come late to everything for the 20 years we've been together. And we've found 163 different reasons to excuse that lateness. Oh, he's a busy doctor and he's in the middle of surgery or whatever, whatever, whatever. And so we've allowed this forever. So it's very hard to now turn on a dime and say to our husband or wife, you know, it's not okay that you always arrive late with a period there. Mm. Very hard to do that. So it's hard to tolerate that thought, let alone find the right thing to say, but it's just hard to tolerate that thought. So that first step, just put it in front of you, deal with it, uh, be with it. Um, and then, and then what's an action he can take? Is, is there something he can do about engaging this person? Well, the, that would be a little fast to engage the person. The, if, if we're going through sort of made up steps, I would say the second step would be to try to tease apart what's my part in it and what's the other person's part in it. That is to, to, to try to get a better sense, to get some clarity and awareness around 
am I doing this? Is he doing this? Or is this the way in which we're, we're doing this dance together? If I'm doing it, well, then it's on my shoulders to do something different. If it's completely his, well, then I have to figure out how to say that in such a way that he can hear it. And if it's both of us, well, then we have the complications of trying to figure out how we can do this dance differently. So I would say that the second step is, is trying to tease apart your own part in the problem. Mm-hmm. Take responsibility for yourself take re- and, and be willing to look in the mirror and say, how am I co-creating this? Absolutely. You know, we've talked about already two different ways we may be co-creating it. It may be part of our original personality. It'd be a little sad. So maybe we're coming to every one of these conversations with with Mary already sort of half defeated and half sad. Well, then we have to work on our own despair there. That's going to make a difference. And I'm just going to sort of make a joke of this. If we suddenly bop into the room cheerfully, already that dynamic is going to be different. I don't Mm -hmm. know how, I don't know where it's going to go. I don't think she'll start dancing along with you just because you wandered in cheerfully. But still, if that's a feature of your original personality, that you're a little sadder, or if that's a feature of your form personality that you're sad, then you need to deal with your own personality there uh, at the same time that you're trying to figure out how to deal with somebody else. Okay. So recognizing, hey, this is what I bring to the table. This is, this is possibly how I help co-create this. And then, and then what happens? Well... You, you try something, <laughs> it, it, it'll be linguistic probably, you'll try to say something, or maybe you'll change something that you do to see if that makes it better. Sometimes it's not about having the other, pe- the other person change in any way, but just you improving the situation for yourself. For instance, if you finally notice that your, your dad is pretty much okay, except immediately when he comes home and then he's always irritable, and always wants to smack the dog or whoever else is around, well, there's nothing to say to him probably, but that's the moment to not be around. That's the time to be at the library for that extra hour reading a book rather than being there when he shows up. Hmm. So sometimes it's just the tactical level of seeing what the situation is and trying to decide for yourself, what's my, what's my smartest move here? Smartest move may not always be confronting the other person or trying to change the other person, it may be on some tactical level to do something different on your own behalf. Got it. Got it. And none of this can happen if my head's in the sand, if I'm making excuses, if I'm blaming or whatever. Like, I've got to come back to what's actually happening, happening. start there, and, and deal with what is the truth, what is actually happening. And then I can start to make a more informed uh, choice. Right. And that can be very confusing so one of the things I suggest, especially if, if there's bullying going on or abuse, is to try to find allies. Because sometimes, and I don't mean necessarily ther- ther- therapists or coaches or what have you, but the first line of ally would be somebody else in the family, which might be a grandparent or a cousin or an aunt, somebody who's not immediately in the dynamic, but who has a picture of the situation and maybe can be on your side. Because there may be... In your immediate family, you know, if you're having difficulties, that may mean that nobody is particularly on your side in that fam- in the immediate family. So you may want to try to find an ally in the extended family, just somebody to talk to and say, you know, am, am I crazy or am I right that mom and dad are, are fighting all the time and that it's, it's a miserable household? Am I right about that? 
sometimes even though we can see it, we're not sure that what we're seeing is, is real. And so having an ally, having somebody to talk to can be very important. Excellent. Uh, I could just see where this can, you know, there's so many different routes you can go here. And this is why the, the book is important to dive in and, and to find allies, like you said, especially if we've been swimming in this water, it's hard for us to see all the different facets and all the different pers- you know, perspectives that are happening there. So um, Eric Maisel, uh, the book is called Overcoming Your Difficult Family, Eight Skills for Thriving in Any Family Situation. You can learn more about him at ericmaisel.com. Eric, thank you so much. I thank you, Tripp, so much. I'm glad to be here. If these interviews are helping you, then please visit The New Man on iTunes and leave us a positive review so others can discover the show more easily. Thanks for listening.